We have just released Issue 4 of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is how spirituality can enhance mental health. My guest is David Rossmarin, who is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, a program director at McLean Hospital Spirituality and Mental Health Program, and founder of the Center for Anxiety in New York. He is an international expert on spirituality and mental health. He has authored over 50 peer-reviewed publications and 100 abstracts focused on spirituality and mental health. He is author of Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You, Spirituality, Religion, and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, A Guide for Clinicians, The Connections Paradigm, Ancient Jewish Wisdom for Modern Mental Health, From Crisis to Connection, and co-author of Handbook of Spirituality, Religion, and Mental Health, and Handbook of Torah and Mental Health. David is located in the Boston area. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for being with me on New Thinking Aloud today. Thanks for having me. Spirituality is often dismissed or ignored in psychiatry, among mental health professionals, and even across the board in healthcare, yet your research has shown that it can be very beneficial for people dealing with many mental health challenges. Uh, indeed. You know, there's, a, I'd like to say, a, a challenging history between spirituality and the field of psychiatry. It really goes back to the days of Sigmund Freud, who uh, was a virulently anti-spiritual, anti-religious, anti-anything um, metaphysical in any way. And um, those, uh, those ideas really took root in the field, such that for the, the better part of the, in fact, almost the entirety of the, of the 20th century, this topic was almost entirely ignored, to your point. You have done research in this area, and what have you discovered? Well, you know, it might be interesting to tell you how we got there, because this really came about, this program of research, and I would say also clinical innovation, because one of the things I do, in addition to studying spirituality and its relevance to mental health, is trying to teach clinicians how to address this topic, how to actually wade into the spiritual lives of patients, which are often um, an area that they want to uh, discuss, that they want to uh, get involved in, and clinicians don't have a lot of training. So, you know, I think the how we got here might be a cool starting point because, you know, this really came up from the patients themselves who, you know, when we started sampling our, our patients and started doing some research in this area, this is in Eastern Massachusetts, okay? not the most religious enclave in the entire country by any stretch in the, in the entire world, I should say, by any stretch. 
And 60% of our patients, 58, nearly 60%, 58.2 exactly percent of our patients stated that they had significant desire to speak with their clinicians about spiritual matters. So it's the kind of topic that, yes, the field ignores, but that is not the case on the ground among our patients, which is quite fascinating. Right. And a high percentage of Americans either believe in God or pray or uh, like you say, they they want it to be addressed as part of their health care. Yet many clinicians are either not trained well or they have their own personal biases that can get in the way. Yeah, I think the biases are less today. I really do think we're, we've sort of entered a post postmodern era and especially in psychiatry, which is very forward thinking and it kind of needs to be. Um, we've really entered a, into a chapter where there isn't a lot of judgment, but I do think that there isn't a lot of attention paid to this because of a lack of training. Clinicians today and researchers really don't know how to assess, how to, how to, how to measure aspects of spirituality, how to address these um, in, in the context of uh, psychiatric research and practice. So to me, those are really the main barriers to the provision of spiritual integrated care. Um, and further research on the subject, as well as funding, of course. Yeah. In what ways have you found that spirituality can enhance mental health? There are enhancements, if you will, and then there also are detriments. So it's very much at the, at the outset, I do want to say it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Spirituality, like any area of life, in fact, has positive and negative uh, effects. We have some interesting findings, though, that we've seen over time. One of them is that patients who have more faith in God, faith in anything, also have more faith in their treatment. They have more faith that their treatment team will be able to help them, even if the treatment is completely secular, even if that they do not receive spiritual care at all during the con during the, their treatment, during the, the course of treatment that they receive. Um, patients who are in acute psychiatric crisis will draw upon faith in something greater as a way of maintaining hope that they can get better, that they can pull out, that there is a meaning to the suffering and ex sometimes excruciating suffering that they are experiencing. And all of those uh, are parlayed during the treatment process such that patients who have those beliefs in, 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 pl in place intact are better able to believe that their treatment team will help them. They're better able to believe that they can be helped, which in turn, as you can imagine, does have a discernible uh, effects on reductions of anxiety and reductions of depression, a less risk like self-harm and self-injury, um, less suicidality and other significant clinical effects. They have more faith in their healing and their practitioners. And you mentioned a word belief that I think is, that's really behind a lot of what we're talking about, isn't it? Is what does a person believe? And that that can really impact not only mental health, but also physical health, because the two really are intertwined. Yes, very much so. You know, I think uh, as one of my mentors put it, uh, belief or faith in something greater can generalize to belief or faith in treatment that, you know, one's treatment can be effective. Um, and I think that that is very well put. Not everybody, though, has that concept of belief. For some people, it's much more experiential. Um, and it's much more um, simply, even by rote, it could simply be a, a set of practices that people have, which is in some ways even devoid of faith. And what we found recently is another positive effect even there. People who are from religious backgrounds, even if they're not, you know, brimming with, uh, you know, verbal expressions of faith that I believe or I'm, 
you know, I'm going to be hope. I have hope. I have faith. I have a connection. Even if, even in the absence of those, if people maintain fidelity, faith, if you will, to a set of religious practices, such as going to religious services on a weekly basis, praying on a daily basis, having certain uh, culture-driven religious uh, behaviors that they engage in on, uh, on a regular basis, those tend to have another effect, which is that they tend to tamp down people's impulsivity. So such individuals who are involved in any faith tradition even in the absence of that belief, as long as they're practicing, they tend to be less um, impulsive, tend to be less involved in substances, substance abuse, alcohol abuse is substantially less, and most of all, they tend to be less suicidal. Completed suicide among people who go to religious services on a weekly basis is one-fifth the level of people who do not, which is an astounding effect. Um, and, uh, that's something that some of my colleagues have, uh, have, have identified. Wow. And what do you attribute that to? Certainly there's the belief component. It also seems that people participate in religious organizations for social connections and community. Yeah, there is the social connection and then there's the community. There's another thing though, which is that religious behavior or religious engagement, if you will, is a way of regulating one's life. And that regulation obviously is a double-edged sword and there can be some downsides to it. And, you know, there can be some very complex aspects to it. But in our, I mentioned, post-post-modern era in the secular world today, there is a tendency, I would say, of people to, in some ways, lose their identity, to lose their compass and to say, who am I? What do I do? And really not to have grounded elements of their life. And religion, religious practice, in, to some degree, even in the absence of faith, tends to ground people such that it's not all, you know, all things go. It's not no holds barred. There are certain pegs within the weekly cycle, within the daily cycle, that anchor a person and that has a psychological effect of, I'm not just gonna, you know, have, engage in substance abuse or alcohol abuse or, or suicidality and other impulsive behaviors. I shouldn't say not, I should say less likely to, because the it's not obvious. Obviously there are religious individuals who struggle, many who struggle with these issues, but the effect sizes are quite large, um, which really does raise um, some interesting questions. Mm-hmm. So going back to the benefits of spirituality for mental health, can you share some more of what those can be for people? Because those listening might be thinking, you know, I've tried this, I've done that, and maybe they found certain components that help, but maybe what you might have to offer could assist them. Uh, yeah, I'm reluctant to prescribe uh, aspects of uh, spirituality and religion uh, in order to deal with mental health. At the same time, um, I do think there are, there are really two main effects, like we spoke about, hope, faith, meaning, connection, I would say is one, which is more cognitive. And then the other is the impulsivity buffer, which is more behavioral, where people are engaged in faith-based activities. They have fidelity to those activities. That tends to ground people more. Um, interestingly, individuals who are spiritual but not religious do not have the latter benefits. 
they are equally likely as people who are secular to have issues with substance abuse, alcohol abuse, suicidality, self-injury, and the like. Um, so there are behavioral elements to uh, religion or to spirituality, and then there are cognitive elements of, spiritual, uh, of spirituality and religion. And I think the general effects really map onto those two domains, if you will, of spiritual life. Um, and they are discernible, positive impacts. Um, although, like I said before, it's not, you know, there are definitely some struggles as well that people have. You mentioned some ways that spirituality can have a positive impact, and we'll definitely get to some of the detrimental effects here in a moment. Some that you mentioned make a lot of sense. And I'm also wondering if in your research, you found that it also helped people to feel that they were less alone, that maybe they were more connected versus feeling separate. Yeah, certainly. I think that that in some ways transcends the cognitive and behavioral. It's more of an experiential aspect of it, um, you know, where people feel or have a sense or a palpable. Sometimes it's not even, a, um, sometimes it can't even be articulated that, um, that, that I'm not alone in the universe. And in some ways, that's, uh, that's an aspect of it that, um, like I said, I, I, think it, I think it arises out of both um, behavioral aspects where people are, you know, engaged and also cognitive aspects where people maintain faith and hope and something greater in there. They're less likely to feel alone. So to, to your point, I, 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 I certainly concur that that's in, in many ways at the, at the core um, of, uh, of what spirituality does, psychologically speaking. Well, it also depends on a person's definition of spirituality. You know, you mentioned you, you, want to stay away from prescribing it. And I agree with you. I think that it's a very individual experience for everyone. Maybe that's why we have so many different religions or people. It seems to be a very growing population or trend, the people who identify as spiritual, but not religious. So what is the definition that you tend to work with or that seems to work the most in your framework about yeah. spirituality? Yeah, I'm happy to share. Um, I, I did get it from my graduate mentor, and it's sort of the you know the uh, most commonly used uh, definition of spirituality and religion in the field. But I do want to mention something important before we get into definitions. I have never had a patient, unless they had an advanced like a two advanced degrees or more, ask me about defining spirituality and religion. This is very much in the realm of like an intellectual sort of way of approaching the topic. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I, myself as an academician, you know, certainly have written about this and I've spoken about this and I'm, but these are usually conversations that are much more germane to the realm of practitioners, to the realm of theologians, to the realm of theoreticians, you know, philosophers, than to actual patients who are struggling with their mental health. And the reason why I mention this is because often the conversation sort of spins out into philosophy as opposed to what's really happening on the ground for patients who are anxious and sad and feeling despondent and feeling disconnected and struggling with their substances or, or their you know substance abuse or alcohol abuse. So they feel self-loathing because they're engaging in these behaviors and they can't, they feel like they can't stop it. And you know, spirituality in those moments, none of those patients are asking, how do you define God? You know, that, that just doesn't come up. What comes up is, hey, I really want to access this more. I don't know how. What can I do? And that's where the magic, if you will, happens 
in spiritual integrated psychotherapy, where we're able to provide for these patients and provide spiritual care, also chaplaincies, you know, mental health chaplaincies, another thing that our hospital is, um, is really doing, McLean Hospital is doing um, in, in a grand scale, um, much more than the theory. Now, with that long preamble, I'm happy to answer your question, but, you know, I did want to make it make it clear that, you know, these are the kind of conversations that come up at conferences, not in the therapy room. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and people have different ideas of what spirituality means for them. So since you are an expert in this area, I was just curious what, how you frame it and, and how you sure. framed it within yeah. your service with patients, but also with your with your research and when you are speaking about it. Sure. Yeah. And it is more to, to the academics that, that this conversation is germane. Um, spirituality is any way, I'll quote from my graduate mentor, my graduate school mentor, Dr. Kenneth Pargament, who I worked with for many years. Still, it's a, he's a close friend. Um, at Bowling Green State University. And uh, he uh, came up with the idea that spirituality is any way, very broad definition, any way at all of relating to that which is sacred, sacred being set apart from the physical world. So anything that has is perceived to having some sort of a metaphysical quality has spiritual value, spiritual engagement. If I perceive my hand, for example, to have some sort of metaphysical aspect, even if, if it's only in part, then my hand could have spiritual um, significance. Um, and the searching for significance uh, in the realm of the sacred is um, really the act of moving into the realm of spirituality. Now, religion is a subset of spirituality. So spirituality would be the larger construct and religion is a subset of that. And that involves any culture bound ways of relating to the sacred. So if you belong to a group of people who all define something metaphysical in a certain way and have certain ways of relating to that metaphysical body, entity, non-physical, non-corporeal structure, you know, for many people we call it God, for other people they might use other words or concepts even. But any way of relating to that which is within a culture-bound manner is considered religion. And what you end up here is really three groups. You have people who are spiritual and religious. You have people who are spiritual but not religious. And then you have people who are neither spiritual nor religious, um, predominantly, according to these definitions and according to this group. And statistically speaking, that accounts for more than 99% of, uh, at least in the United States, um, people who are uh, will fall into one of those three, three, three groups. The largest group are religious and spiritual. The second largest, which is a growing group, are the people who are spiritual but not religious. And then the smallest are people who are neither spiritual nor religious. I love that definition of being set apart, the sacred, from the physical and recognizing that we are more than this seemingly physical world. So what have you found in your research as far as, you know, people are dealing with all sorts of ways that they're experiences can impact their ability to function, their thoughts. So there's, of course, uh, anxiety. I know you, you've you written a whole book about that. There's mood disorders, depression, bipolar, people who are self-harming, people who are in considering suicide, uh, psychotic disorders, eating disorders, like you mentioned, substance use, behavioral addictions, pain, end-of-life care, which I imagine is a, a 
big area where people begin really exploring, sure. if they haven't already, spirituality as well. So what has, what have your outcomes shown with, um, improvements with spirituality with these different groups? Well, it's interesting. You know, the, the, the first point to make in this is that when people bring a spiritual, a religious lens to psychotherapy, even if they're provided with secular treatment, that, that treatment has spiritual meaning. And we've had some interesting findings and seen this in, in other laboratories as well, where people who go through secular treatment having nothing to do with spiritual and religious life, if they have spiritual beliefs at the beginning of treatment, those will actually increase over the course of the treatment that they are receiving. I think it happens for two reasons. The one is that if you have a spiritual message, even if you're speaking to someone who's not, who's, who's not religious, who's, who's not spiritual, who's secular, and they're providing you with messages, you're going to filter it through your lens of spirituality. And the other thing is when people have a reduction in their symptoms and they are having an improved mood, it's easier for them to access that which they value and that which they, they believe. You know, conversely, when you provide people with spiritual psychotherapy, it's less important if they're religious or spiritual, and it's more important if they want spiritual psychotherapy. 40% of the patients in our hospital who access spiritual care have no religious or spiritual identity at all. That is in fact the largest group of people. They are more likely, the nuns as we call them, N-O-N-E's, the nuns are more likely to access spiritual care than Catholics more likely than Protestants, and certainly more than any other, than any other religious group um, in, in our hospital. And I think what that shows, you know, sort of the combination of these different findings shows something interesting, which is that it's hard to do a, a sort of head-to-head -head horse race, if you will, a randomized control trial of spiritual versus non-spiritual care, because if you provide spiritual care um, to people who don't want it, well, you can't really do that. Um, and if you typecast them based on their religious faith, you're going to exclude a lot of people, which is something that some of the research has done in the past. Um, and furthermore, if you provide them with secular care, if they're coming in with spiritual values, they're going to have spiritual and sacred meaning, which because they bring it, it comes from them. Never mind the practitioner, you know, it's going to have some sacred spiritual meaning. So these are conundrums and, and confounds, in fact, that actually make it quite difficult to to assess what are the effects here and why are they happening. However, with that said, we've had a lot of success in providing spiritual care, both by clinicians and by chaplains um, to uh, individuals in mental health crisis. Um, over six, 7,000 patients at this point have received some form of spiritual care at McLean Hospital in the last six, seven years. So um, pretty, pretty amazing numbers. Um, that we've been able to, um, to do. And, and patients with all sorts of diagnoses from all sorts of backgrounds, these treatments are well tolerated. I, you know, we've actually never had a single adverse event of a spiritually integrated care, uh, patients receiving it, which is pretty amazing in, in, in the last several years. And patients with multiple diagnoses, patients with uh, multiple backgrounds of different ages. So, the, you know, these treatments are tolerated well they are, there's a high demand for them. And to me, that's really the, in some ways, the most important, uh, the most important finding that we've ever had. Do you find that 
patients who are receiving support from their already existing spiritual or religious community fare better in their recovery process? For example, if they are receiving, maybe if they're on a, a prayer chain or they have somebody come visit them from their community who give them more support. These types of resources do have a big difference. The question is why? Is it a matter of social support? Or do these individuals just have general spiritual beliefs that are coming in, which means that they're more likely to have spiritual care, and they're also better, like more likely to react well in treatment as a result of this. So, so there are again, there are these confounds which are hard to tease out. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I, I think it, I, I don't think it goes beyond our data to say that these are important resources for people with psychiatric uh, concerns. Perhaps social support is also a form of spirituality in that. Some consider that, for example, they may think that God is love and that through relationships we can give and receive that, which is not always readily seen, right? You can't see love. <laughs> I think that, you know, to your point, uh, the, you know, there are many pathways to spirituality. And when people sanctify their relationships and see those as sacred, that people are brought into their lives for a reason, if you will, or that they are you know, relationships are not simply uh, haphazard or uh, coincidental, that there is, um, you know, some sort of sacred meaning to them, some sort of metaphysical meaning. Um, I do think those can supercharge our interpersonal connections um, and sometimes help us to maintain them, even though they might be challenging. Mm -hmm. So to your point earlier about how you don't want to prescribe spirituality, and I, like I said, I agree with you, it's very personal. At the same time, how can practitioners encourage their patients to maybe even just have a brief dialogue about it? Or how can practitioners be more aware and address this in therapy? What we like to do is it's called scaffolding. And scaffolding um, provides anchors or clear points that clinicians can ask to patients, clear language for patient, cl for clinicians rather, to use with patients, and then tools that patients can point to, literally saying, oh, that's interesting to me, this is not interesting to me. Um, we use handouts, and those handouts actually scaffold, if you will, they provide enough structure for the patient and the clinician to have a conversation about matters of spirituality without us saying, oh, you should really do this, because if we're providing patients with a list of, let's say, 10 different beliefs or 20 different religious behaviors, or we're talking to them about different spiritual struggles that people might have in areas where spirituality might make it harder for them, which we haven't talked about yet, by the way, um, have to circle back to that, then um, those uh, patients can point and say, oh, you know what, this really means something to me. And then that becomes more of a starting point for the conversation. So there are some, that's one of the innovations, if you will, that we've done. Um, and uh, yeah, I've done workshops with, uh, you know, well over a thousand clinicians in the past several years, training um, individuals to be able to assess for and address uh, spiritual matters with their patients using some pretty simple handouts that we've published. They're in the public domain. Um, we've, we made them available open source because uh, we really want uh, clinicians around the world to be able to use these these uh, these tools. What do you mean by spiritual struggles? So I mentioned before that there's definitely positive sides to spirituality, faith, hope, connection. 
um, uh, regularity. Um, but there's also negative sides. When people feel abandoned by their faith, when people feel that things are happening to them that shouldn't be happening, they feel they're questioning, is this, is this right? Is this good? Um, you know, I've had patients come to me and say they feel that God hates them. These are struggles. When people look inside themselves and they really don't like what they see, they see a broken person. Um, and that has spiritual meaning in many cases. You know, what did I do wrong? Can I get out of this? Is, it, am I stuck? Am I spiritually stuck? Am I cursed? You know, these are, these are big questions and big, they have a lot of emotional weight. Um, in many cases, we've been able to trace patients' levels of suicidality, how suicidal they were when they came to the hospital to these struggles, which is pretty remarkable. Um, and that even occurs among secular people who have no religious faith at all. It's equally likely to occur. The, the prevalence of struggles and the relevance of those to mental health concerns is the same among people who are ostensibly secular, which is a really interesting finding. We've seen that in a number of papers that we published. Right. Sometimes people can feel like God is punishing them or that they maybe were raised in an environment where they felt that it was even yep. a cult or that they even had actual abuse uh, in the name of that particular religious organization. So what have you found that can be helpful or healing for those folks? The most important thing that clinicians can do and that anyone can do is simply listen when people have struggles. You know, there's this tendency to say, no, God doesn't hate you. Or like, you know, no, you're a good person. And, and I know it comes from a good place, but it's much more important to get patients to simply speak about it. In most cases that I've found, spiritual struggles are like a deep, dark secret that patients have been carrying around, sometimes for 20, 30, 50 years. I saw a case recently where a man was abused by a clergy person when they were, he was an altar boy, what age, 12, 13, 14? Happened for a couple of years. This is a man in his late 60s who had been married for 40 years, more than 40 years, multiple kids, multiple grandkids, and he never even told his wife. He never even told her. He was so ashamed and felt so degraded um, by what had happened to him. And simply getting him to talk about it with me, with her, with his new pastor, with a lot of other people was just a, a real gift for him and a real stepping stone for him to move forward in his mental health journey. Um, for many years, he had struggled with anger and impulsivity and depression and substance abuse, and he never knew why. And, you know, this, this came out and, well, maybe that's why, you know, you're, you've really been struggling here. And, and we didn't try to change it because you can't, but we just got him to speak about it um, in some degree of detail. And um, he's not struggling as much today. He still does, of course, but not nearly as much because he spoke about it. Mm. So that maybe in some way helped decrease his stress or what do you think was happening there that maybe he felt more accepted? I'll tell or... you what I think happened. Yeah, tell me. I, and I think this happens in general with people who have spiritual struggles. They feel that God hates them and then they judge themselves for feeling that way. So just being able to speak about it gives them a reprieve of, oh, this other person's not judging me for feeling this way. I have a safe space, if you will, that I can talk about it. 
and then they don't feel as alone. You know, just validating like, oh, people say that to me all the time. They do? Yeah, lots of patients feel that way. Oh, I didn't know that. Like, wow, maybe I'm not as evil as I thought. And for feeling this way, you know, that, that's, that's a reframe in one's own identity, um, which, is, which is really transformative. You mentioned some of the struggles with religion or spirituality. What have you discovered as far as when certain religious groups feel that they have the answers, that other groups are bad or less than because they don't have those particular beliefs? And how do you find that that can impact somebody's mental health? And do you have a remedy for that? <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, first and foremost, you know, I, I want to make it clear. I think all human beings have some degree of those beliefs and whether they're religious or whether they're secular, I think, uh, you know, most people have their beliefs and their perspectives and are pretty convinced that those are correct. One of those beliefs might be that there nobody is correct, that everybody has the same, but that's still a position that that is still in philosophy. We call it relativism, but relativism is nevertheless a position to take in philosophy. And it's not necessarily, you know, um, a bad thing. I think people need to be clear about these are my morals. These are my values. This is what I want to accomplish. This is what I believe. This is what I don't believe. And that doesn't have to gear us up for, you know, uh, antipathy towards others, for judgment of others. That could actually, in, I believe, enhance a self-identity such that people are just clear about this is who I am. If somebody else isn't this way, okay. Now, obviously taking it the next step and, you know, forced conversion or, you know, militant activity or terrorism. I mean, obviously those are, that's not what I'm talking about here, but I, I don't think that having clear, discernible um, religious beliefs is a risk factor in any way for, um, for mental health. On the contrary, I think today in our post-post, it's the third time I'm saying this, post-post-modern era, where people are really confused about who am I and what's the point in life and what's my mission and what's my purpose, having those anchors, I think, can actually be very helpful and containing. Even if they're limited, I think people can still benefit from having um, structure, from having that structure today. And I don't see it in of itself. I don't see it leading to major mental health concerns um, more than any other position, more than a secular position. However, it could impact social relationships when a person feels that maybe their religion or spiritual practice is superior to other groups. I think about Martin Buber, who talked about the other versus having a relationship of I and thou and, rec and recognizing that we can all really coexist versus feeling that one group is better than another. Yeah, I don't think that's um, inconsistent with what I'm saying. I, I, I'll be honest, you know, working in a secular environment, uh, you know, for the last, I mean, 20 years, I've been in and out of universities. I've actually seen more closed mindedness in, <laughs> in the university environment than I have in even the most devout religious enclaves, because I think the reason that happens is when people aren't sure about what they themselves believe, 
they're much more likely to start to attack and nip at other people's beliefs as opposed to when you're like, well, this is just who I am. And if you're not like that, then fine, that's you. Um, you know, again, I, I don't see this as a risk factor for interpersonal uh, disharmony in this current day and age. Now, in years past, yes, like certainly history has borne it out that way. But in the current era, that's definitely not been my experience, um, ironically. Yeah. And on that note, how has, for example, the American Psychological Association accepted your research and your methodologies? I definitely, I published in APA journals. I've published in American Psychiatric Association journals, American Psychological Association journals. I think there's been a lot of change in the last 20 years, the last 10 years, and even the last five years, you know, post COVID. I think there was much more of an openness to spirituality. Where I see a disparity, which is what I think you were really asking for and leaning into, I do see a disparity when it comes to funding. That the National Institutes of Health have yet to fund an RFP, a request for proposals, or an RFA, a request for applications in this area. Um, and it's kind of strange because this is an area of identity which is very common. It is clearly linked in positive and negative ways to a variety of mental health outcomes and even health outcomes, physical health outcomes, never mind mental health. Yet it's the kind of thing that the academy at the highest level has really shied away from, from supporting. Um, my research portfolio is almost entirely funded through private philanthropic gifts and uh, foundations, which are sort of specifically interested in this, in this area not necessarily religious foundations. Some of them are non-sectarian. Um, some of them are, uh, are, are secular, in fact, but nevertheless interested in supporting this work, but without real commitment to funding from the government bodies that are behind it, there are limits to what we know. And I, I think that's where the disparity is, more than in the professional associations at this, time, at this point in time, anyway. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas as to why that's happening and what might help shift that? forward and larger directions? I'll answer the second question. In terms of shifting things forward, recently there was a special interest group, otherwise known as a SIG, special interest group, uh, which was formed across the entire NIH, uh, which uh, some brave folks at the NIAAA, the National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, um, uh, formed. And uh, they've been active in creating programming and opening up a dialogue across the institutes on matters of spirituality and religion and health. And uh, I think that's a, definitely a step in the right direction um, for, for the world. I think it's a necessary component of, of evidence-based care uh, since so many patients, even in the least religious enclaves, again, of the United States still have religious and spiritual beliefs. Spirituality is still relevant to their treatment and relevant to their symptoms. So I do think these are all positive steps in the right direction, but it's, uh, it's gonna take time. It's going to take time. The, uh, we talked at the beginning about the roots laid down by Sigmund Freud and colleagues at the beginning of the, the, you know, the outset of the field of psychiatry. And, and those, are, those are still very uh, common. They're still prevalent. An area that's getting more attention is psychedelics for the treatment of mental health. What have you found with your research or what thoughts do you have on that? Yeah, psychedelics is very exciting. You know, we have here neurotherapeutic um, 
process, which is being combined in some ways with a spiritual experience for many people. And, and when it comes to treatment refractory depression, people who have uh, had depression for multiple years, there are, in, there are cases at least of people having what we call breakthroughs where all of a sudden, you know, they're seeing things in a different light. Um, I have a colleague who's been using uh, psychedelics um, to uh, enhance couples therapy and to enhance uh, intimate connection and having sort of a combination of spiritual and interpersonal uh, processes going on together, which is pretty interesting. There's, you know, certainly literature emerging about people getting unstuck and people who are seeing new vistas or having new experiences that sort of break them out of a certain way of thinking that they've been stuck in for five, 10, 15, 20, even longer, many years. Um, with all that sort of encouraging positive material coming out, the data is still very, very early. And, uh, you know, there are only a couple of labs that are really taking this extremely seriously and studying it methodically. I think we're at least five years away from having a clarity. And I, I also think one thing that's getting missed a little bit is that people are engaging in the substance aspects of it, the actual, you know, use of the psychedelics without having clear guidelines for how to engage with spiritual domains. And I think this is powerful medicine. I mean, we talked about it before, and there's positive and negative effects. And we really do need to be able to harness it well in a constructive manner. Um, so I think in some ways the the research and the use of the um, pharmacological agent is outpacing the psychosocial aspects of treatment, what treatment might look like. So that's a little bit of an area of a concern for me. But with that said, you know, I think it's a positive movement overall and we'll have to see where it goes. You're at Harvard where Herbert Benson is, I believe, Professor Emeritus, and he coined the term the relaxation response where he studied transcendental meditators and people who prayed, nuns and monks, and devised a whole way for people to engage the relaxation response where it can even help down to the genetic level with positive expressions of the genes. What have you found around the benefits or the, the risks of prayer or meditation currently with your work? Yeah, it's a great question. A little bit of history here, just interestingly, you know, Herb Benson um, really was the father of mind-body medicine. And um, he did such an amazing uh, job, amazing work, really showing the field that the, the way that people think has an indelible effect on their health, on the way that their body um, functions day to day at the molecular level, at the genetic level, at all, you know, at all sorts of levels um, because of a variety of, uh, of, of clear, um, uh, clear pathways. Spirituality, I would say, is a subset of mind-body medicine because when people are engaged in spiritual aspects, that's really a way of engaging the mind, if you will, and, um, and the heart, I suppose, and the soul or whatever that is. And uh, that has health effects too. So in some ways, spiritual, spirituality and mental health research is a subset of mind-body medicine. And uh, I, I certainly owe a lot of gratitude to Herb Benson um, and his work and his colleagues' work on breaking down the barriers. With that said, you know, I do think mind-body medicine has fallen short 
of actually embracing and really going into the realm of spirituality. And the reason why, when the field was getting set up, you know, now at this point, 30, 40 years ago, it, it was already out there enough, right? It was, it was a big stretch for the field to think that the mind could have an impact on the body. I mean, that's a, that was a big idea. And to add spirituality to that would have been like a conversation killer. That would have just been the end of it. And I think with things have evolved in a positive way that now mind body medicine is sort of understood to be just part of what we have to do, whether it's in migraines or even in, in, uh, in infertility. I mean, there's fantastic research going on and certainly in mental health, we have the clear effects of in, in, in importance of mind body medicine. And that's all given way to be able to address issues of spirituality, which are often more core to people when you ask them. Meditation has become more popular with yoga being on almost every corner and every city and town across the U.S. More people are engaging in meditation and maybe even prayer. What have you found in your research when you, when you look at those practices of meditation and prayer on how a person's uh, health might be impacted. We've done some research that suggests that the extent to which people pray on a regular basis, if it's once a month or if it's not at all versus once a month versus once a week versus daily, um, that that can have some effects on buffering them against impulsivity, buffering them, buffering them against suicidality, helping them to get through substance abuse and alcohol abuse um, and the like. Um, Meditation, I know less about just because I have colleagues who've been studying this, uh, you know, for many years and are really much more, you know, experts in this area. And my area is sort of more niche and specific, which is one of the reasons I've shied away from it. Um, but um, there's really fascinating research on meditation and depression in particular. And, uh, and uh, you know, the importance of these, if you will, spiritual uh, practices that have been around for millennia. Um, is, uh, I, I think, clear and, and demonstrable. And uh, I wouldn't say uniformly positive, but generally speaking, there are a lot of potential benefits of engaging in these practices, um, at least somewhat regularly from a mental health perspective. David, is there anything else you want to share today about how spirituality can enhance mental health? I think it's great to be having a conversation about this. You know, I think it's the kind of topic that was... Uh, issued for most of the 20th century. And here we are, you know, and, uh, and really moving into a more, um, uh, a more open spiritual zeitgeist within the field of mental health. I think it's an exciting time to be doing this type of work and research. I do hope that um, the, the future will see much more um, of an understanding of spirituality and mental health and more clinical innovation so we can help the, 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 as many patients as we possibly can. Yeah. Well, thank you for all that you're doing in this area. And thank you so much for being with me today. I look forward to having more conversations with you on New Thinking Aloud. Thank you. Appreciate it. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here.
I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? 